0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today we have a special guest, Elizabeth, who's going to talk to us about all things trauma and addiction from the perspective now of a recovery coach professional and her life experiences. Hi Elizabeth. Hey Jacqueline. Thank you how- for having me. Thank you for being a guest. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. And um, yeah. Good. How are
0: you? Good. I'm good. I'm excited yes. for this conversation.
1: Me too. Me too. I'm excited to see where this goes, what comes out.
0: And I always, just before we kind of jump into your story and your reality, I always like to ask the guest where they are located. I find it so fascinating that the world is like this massive place, but we can connect at a click of a button. <laughs>
1: it is It's amazing, isn't it? So I am currently living in the south of Spain, just about 40 minutes south of Malaga. And I've been here... I've been here for a few months, and before this, I was actually living in Ibiza for eight years. And where is that? Ibiza is also Spain, one of the Balearic Islands. It's actually known as the Party Island.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) And does it live up to those standards?
1: Parts of it do. It's definitely, I mean, it was never somewhere I wanted to live uh, because of the kind of how it was portrayed in the media as being this real party. Place in Europe specifically, but when I got there, there's so much more to it. It's actually a lot more healing around healing, um, and yeah, self care. So it was an interesting
0: okay. Well, are you ready to jump into your story and your experiences?
1: Yes, I am. Okay, so yeah, I I mean, I would normally start this as I'm Elizabeth and I'm an addict. Uh, I For me, addiction has been a lifelong, um, I'm not going to use the battle, it was a lifelong experience. And I finally accepted last year that it was a problem and I needed help. But before that, uh, to to start off with, what I've learned in the the last year is that I was born to be an addict. Uh, The trauma with me started while I was in the womb and if anyone has had any sort of read anything from Gabor Mate, we actually start picking up you know, our, our hormones, our stress levels start when we're in the in the womb as a fetus. We can we, we we're affected. So my childhood was I had a good childhood. Um, I was cared for. I had a, a good house. Uh, my parents were both present. Um, we had you know financially. We were stable, but there were incidents that happened that had me doubting myself, doubting my worth, doubting whether or not I was lovable. Um, as I said, you know, the trauma started when I was in the womb, but I logically, I didn't know any of that until much later. It was something that came out. Uh, when I was three, we were attacked. Uh, we had a home invasion. I was living in Jordan. My, my family are are travellers, sort of nomads by, it would appear, by sort of heritage. But we were living in Jordan. We had a home attack and we were um, had this home invasion and I was held at knife point. And I had the, the vision, what I realised later on, the vision that stayed with me was my mother's face, which left me with a real sense of guilt. Um, constantly feeling guilty about things we then moved when we moved back to the UK from there I my parents started divorcing I don't want to go too much into what the traumas were because I believe that everybody every child experiences some trauma whether or not it's big trauma such as you know home invasion divorce you know abuse and or small traumas, as in you know, just hearing from a teacher that you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very much this aspect, but to be to get through to get through childhood without trauma is is almost impossible. But I, I was always I, I always felt slightly different. I always felt that there was something different about me. I felt very affected by what was going on and i mean this came out when i was very young probably about four or five and people would ask me what do you want to be when you grow up and my answer was i want to be a nurse i want to stop people suffering so much Um, and i think i clung on to the idea of nurse because it was at that age the only thing i could think of that was sort of in that area anyway as i grew up and I you know was a, affected and, and felt the emotions and the the stress the trauma that my parents were going through during their divorce the just the general sort of like the that empathic aspect feeling what was going on with people around me we were living in london um, i was at a school where you had to be quite it was quite academic and again i was dyslexic so i was i wasn't living up to standard there I struggled with reading I struggled with writing um, and then I developed juvenile rheumatoid arthritis which just made me more different from everybody else I I was struggling to walk I the only sort of a lot of what I really enjoyed as a child was being active gymnastics trampolining running around climbing trees and suddenly I lost the ability to be able to do that as well because of the arthritis and Can can you elaborate
0: more on what that, what that is for those that may not know? And for me, because I don't, I I kind of have an idea, but I don't really know. Okay. So
1: juvenile rheumatoid arthritis is, is a form of rheumatoid arthritis that affects the joints, um, knees, ankles, elbows. It can affect people's back, the spine. At at the time I was diagnosed, it was very unknown. Um, And it took them two years to realize what was going on with me but it creates basically the same pain and immobility and swelling that rheumatoid arthritis brings to older people, adults, when they get it. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, so it affected me in my right ankle, my left knee, to begin with. Um, but one thing that is, they do say it, is it kind of burns itself out. So it will start I when I was going to hospital, there were a couple of kids that were sort of two, three that were, you know, afflicted by this. And they, after adolescence, it is expected to burn itself out. And as long as treatment has been good and it's been treated in that time, most mobility can be sort of regained and recovered. There are a few cases where that's not so. Um, but it so for me, I, I could I couldn't walk very easily. I would sort of it was a very painful, and there were a couple of kids at school when I started then at high school, secondary school as we call it here, that kind of just called me the invalid or the, the cripple. I was known as, which gave that sort of again that sense of I wasn't I wasn't like everybody else. I wasn't normal. And the older I got, you know, teenagers are cruel, aren't they? Let's just face it. Teenagers can be To
0: put it nicely, yes, they are. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think it's got better. I listen, I've got two teenage daughters or a preteen and a teenage daughter. And I listen to my eldest now and think, oh, things have changed for the better. But back then, oh, it was, it could be brutal. Um, And... I had, you know, frizzy curly hair. I had this sort of like this condition that meant I couldn't walk properly. My mother was—I was came from a single parent family, where and still at this point, divorce was fairly unheard of. You know, there weren't that many, you know, kids from divorced families in my class. Uh, On top of that, she decided that, and I love her very much. I, I, I actually really admire her journey, and she's an incredibly brave, courageous woman had decided that she wanted to start following um, and learn about homeopathy. So she was very alternative. We lived in a small village in the south of England and everybody was sort of like quite conservative, quite normal. And then I had this mother who was wearing hippie clothes with mirrors all over their tops and sort of bells with hennaed hair, you know, going on about alternative therapies. Um, So, yeah, I just felt, unacceptable I suppose I wasn't as I said kids can be cruel I I found it very difficult to feel like I was normal to feel like I was you know I fit in with everybody else and then very early on I was introduced to alcohol Um, it was cider and it was a way of fitting in finding you know a group of people I think I've heard this story so many times from others but it was a way it it made me it gave me a, a tribe of people it gave me a reason to be there and to be with people and then shortly after I discovered drugs um, you know starting with weed and for me it took away the discomfort it took away the sense that I was different it gave me a way to What's the best way? To be at ease with who I was, to, or to, to avoid who I really was and to create this person that fit in with everybody else. So that was the beginning. And I used those, you know, as I've heard many times people say, it started off fun. It was fun going out to the parks, going out into the fields, yeah, drinking, getting a bit drunk, getting a bit high, messing around, playing and then at university, you know, we started experimenting with a few more things. And again, it was a way of feeling confident and being able to speak to people. I was actually very shy um as a as a kid. I found it difficult to 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 strike up conversations. Um, and there was that wonderful I remember thinking back and just thinking, oh, I made so many good connections sitting on the toilets. or to, just sitting on the toilet floor after a night out, or you know, as a night out as a as a student, getting high, you know, doing various whatevers, and thinking of having these really deep connections, deep conversations. And I look back at it now and just saying, Oh my good God, <laughs> you know, did you <laughs> actually even remember what it was? It's was... like, no, we're talking absolute rubbish. But I felt like I would I had friends it felt like I was the same as everybody else um and I carried on I always thought that I would stop when my you know if I ever had children I always thought that I would stop um then I fell pregnant and I didn't stop and I think that was probably the first time I actually thought "Mm, I might have a bit of a problem here um, and before we could, I've just something that came up is that one before I, I sort of settled down, I had kids. I worked on a cruise ship in, in the States, actually, and they had a zero drug policy. So I gave up all the drugs because I wanted that job. And I thought, that's great. I can do that. But I still drank um, quite heavily. And when I was on the ships, it was it's just so acceptable, isn't it? It's just so acceptable to drink. Um, as a way of release, as a way of relaxing, and I, all my stories now I realise, my daughters are asking me, all my stories from the ships revolve around alcohol. Because um, when I came into recovery, I never thought that alcohol was a problem for me. It was just the drugs I wanted out. And the more I look back, it's sort of like mm, no, actually, <laughs> alcohol is is as guilty. Um, or I am as guilty of turning to alcohol so yeah I by when I had my kid I my substance of choice and I'm going to say this because again it's something that for a long time people never considered it to be a problem but my substance of choice was weed Uh, I loved you know that was what I did that's where I turned but it was there was always this sort of seem to be, and I don't want to use the word stigma, because stigma is one of the things that I really find I, I want to kind of reduce now. Yes. And try and stop the stigma around. Right it. there with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it just affects everyone. But it was always this sort of like, well, weed, it's not really a drug. It's it's a plant. It's it's not heavy. It's not hard. It's 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 fine um and whenever i'd say to people or it's well actually not people when i would say to my parents i think i might need help no no it's just we just stop it's you know what do you mean just just stop uh but it's a drug it's a mind-altering substance it's addictive it affects your brain chemistry and i needed help i i needed help from that um so yeah, you know why I've always said I'd stop when I got pregnant. Strangely enough, I couldn't. In fact, the stresses of life got more. There was more need to escape reality. There was more need to go, go. Oh my good god, you deserve to just chill out. And the for me, D Day came a couple of years ago. It started when my eldest daughter got in the car after you know being at school, and I said to her oh, how are you, darling? You know, how was school? She said, it was very interesting, actually. Thank you. Uh, We had a talk today on drink and drugs. I went, oh, what did you learn? And she just turned around to me and went, you're a drug addict. Wow. And I was sort of like, you know, draw dropped and sitting there in my mind, desperately, desperately trying to find a reason as to why it was okay that I did what I did. Um, And how long ago was this, that you had uh, this conversation with your daughter? That would have been probably about two and a half years ago. She was in her first year. Okay. Yeah, her first year of high school. So she was in her first year of high school. Um, And that, and I, I knew, I mean, for the last decade, I know I've known I've had a problem. I know it's got in the way of. My quality of life, uh, the way that I experience life—it's gotten the way of my professional development. Um, I've worked—I've worked for myself after the cruise ships. I've worked for myself. I've had my own massage business, so I spent my life helping other people, um, trying to support them in living a healthier life. And there was always this bit of me—I felt like such a fraud because I knew that I wasn't doing the same. For myself, if that makes sense, you know, Mm -hmm. I needed to have this escape. I needed to have this substance, whether or not it was alcohol or whether or not it was weed. I needed to have this substance to feel okay about myself, to be able to handle, handle day to day life realistically, because I was using from morning till night. Um, And I, I moved to Ibiza in 2014 and that's when I really realized I thought oh well you know when I moved to Ibiza I've been living in Cyprus before moved to Ibiza new life new beginning I can be whoever I want I'll stop then and it's this you can you know I I took myself out of a situation but I I stayed with myself I can change my surroundings but my head came with me and it was my head that was the problem it was the Not having accepted what had happened, not having dealt, actually not accepted, not having dealt with what had happened in my childhood, the various traumas that had gone on, um, speaking about them, understanding how they actually had affected me in such a profound way. I'd always thought it was was just normal um, and I should be okay. Uh, And it was that time, 70s and 80s. I mean, I was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s, where you didn't talk about feelings. Children, you know, children's feelings weren't particularly considered as important. Mm -hmm. uh, To discuss things that had happened wasn't... It wasn't the done thing. Um, At what
0: point did that ever change? Like, from kind of your generation standpoint or do you think it did
1: in what sense there's sort of being able to talk about things
0: yeah like kind of in your in your growing up experience was there ever a time where it was
1: more accepted no, no the probably. only time it was accepted was when I was you know when we was when I was sitting on on a bathroom toilet with someone off my face off our faces talking about our life that was the only time these things it was okay because I think it was this thing of it's it's not it it wasn't okay to not be okay you have (laughs) to be strong you have to pretend that everything's okay that nothing you know nothing's affected you you're not sad you're not hurt you're not scared You've you've just got to be okay the whole time um and I don't I think for me it was it's only really been since I came into recovery but I've had this sense that it's okay not to be okay.
0: And that's been relatively recent for you, right?
1: Re- yeah, relatively recent to me. I've always, and this is a strange thing, I've always encouraged my clients. So as a massage therapist, people would come in and it was more than just a, this is what got me into coaching. It was more than just a massage. They'd lie on my treatment table and they'd start talking to me about everything that was going on to their lives, their fears, their worries, their everything. And I always... Really, I felt honoured that that space felt safe enough for them to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, part of it was, is that I just, you know, I I learned through experience over the decades that the energy of all of these things gets stuck in our body Um, and people would have physical issues. And we'd have, you know, after working with them for a while, the physical side of things would be resolved. They'd be fine but they're still experiencing the pain, they're still experiencing, they'd still be experiencing the sort of the discomfort and the, um, what's the way for it, you know, any sort of movement issues. And it would only start to improve when they'd actually let out the emotions that they'd trapped in there, the, the fears, the emotions, the sadness, the grief that they'd never allowed themselves to feel. So I could see it with other people, but it just, it was this thing that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to feel it. I wasn't allowed to admit admit I was okay.
0: And so when did, when did you finally admit that you weren't okay and that, you know, support was needed?
1: It was after another attempt to stop smoking, to stop smoking weed um, in early 2022 and... Yeah, you know, for years and I think I, I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to my birthday would come around it's like right I'm stopping then Christmas would come around I'm going to stop <laughs> at New Year it's sort of like in this I was on a, an annual cycle of these sort of like I'll stop after the summer holidays I'll stop here and it would come and it would go and nothing would ever happen so New Year 2022 came um, and I was just sort of like right I am fed up with this I blamed everything that went wrong, everything that didn't happen in my business, everything that didn't happen in my personal life, everything that went wrong was the fat was the drug. And it was just sort of like, so it's got to go. I've got to go. And after a couple of attempts myself to quit and realizing that I couldn't because the depression with weed, one of the biggest, I don't know if it's actually just weed. The you know, the the great thing about recovery is you get your emotions back. But the terrible thing about going, getting clean and sober, and I hate that word clean. I'm looking for a new one because it's not about being clean Um, It kind of indicates you're dirty otherwise. But it's not. But you get your emotions back and it's like, oh, my God, well, what do I do with all these emotions? How do I handle them? And and I didn't have the tools to be able to handle the, you know, the emotions that came up. And I was struggling. I'd started having fantasies about running away, leaving my children with my mother, uh, packing a bag and running off to Morocco or anywhere, anywhere in the world and just not taking a phone and just, you know, again, I wanted to run away. Um, And I picked the girls up from school one day. We were driving home and they were bickering in the back of the car. And, I mean, for anyone who's got kids, you'll know that, oh, (laughs) my good God, it's just, you know, that... Incessant it's, it's like Japanese water torture And I just turned around And kind of just turned around to them I probably shouted it But definitely spoke louder than I would have liked And just said if this is the way my life's going to be I want to be dead And it was the look on their faces I was sort of like I'm, I'm, I've messed up I'm screwing them up I'm screwing my life up I need help And I Turned to my mum yeah you know, i think it was the next day that afternoon i can't remember you know it's a bit blurry i was like i need help i need to go i've tried so many times i need to go into treatment i need to rehab um, and i need your help to make that happen because i need someone to look after the girls and i need you know i i needed help to speak to my family regarding the finances and i don't know what was different I don't know, because it wasn't the first time I'd kind of reached out and asked for help, but as I said before, it would always been, oh, it's just weed, it's not a problem. Um, this time, something something different, whether or not I actually think it was my guardian angels. They were so sick and tired of trying to keep me safe, <laughs> with, you know, having, well, under the influence, various, uh, it was like, right, okay. And within about two weeks, I was in treatment here in Spain, and my it was i have the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life um yeah
0: can can we delve if you're comfortable delve more into the treatment side of things and what kind of the treatment center like how they operated how they helped kind of any
1: very much yeah i'm happy to talk about it so for me it was um it, it I looked. I found the centre I went to actually had did one to one therapy every day, and also did group therapy every day. And for the first, I mean, every time I opened my mouth for the first five days, I just cried. I cried and cried and cried. I could not stop. There was just so much to come out. But it was the being able to speak openly about what had happened to me, about the feelings I'd had around the divorce, around feelings I had in all those little traumas through my life, being able to speak about that and hearing that other people had had that too. that I wasn't alone in that. Um, I also wasn't alone in turning to substances as a coping mechanism, um, understanding, coming to understand that actually my Addiction and, the, and the substances for me had been a form of self-medicating against, or not against, but for the basically chronic anxiety I'd been experiencing since being a toddler. Um, so it was that aspect of it. It was amazing to be in a place where there was no judgment I was accepted for exactly who I was, including all the bits that I'd been so scared to let out, all the things that I thought made me not good enough, made me sort of like worthless. To be able to to air those, to shed light on those, and for people to still accept and love me, even with that, um, and to be able to do the same for others. Um, yeah.
0: Did, did you make connections while you were there that you... St- held on to prior, like, at the end of treatment?
1: Yep, there are. I mean, there are still people th- that I, I'm i in contact with. For me, the, the shocking thing that is the – and I, I don't want to say it because I have such a respect for treatment centers for the people that work in them, but the success rate is surprisingly low, mm-hmm. um, and that I find – I just find so sad. I think is the best word for it because, you know, you see people in there, and what happened was so. I actually maintained um, contact with the treatment centre. They offered me some work uh, with my experience of coaching and as a Reiki healer and as massage. They actually offered they offered me some support work when I left. So I was able to keep going back uh, and stay in touch with the center and there are people from my group that I'm in touch with but I do believe I'm the only one from my group that has maintained recovery um I've watched a lot of people slip try, you know get themselves back up but how
0: how many were in your group
1: there were 14, because it's so rolling through. I think when the smallest there were 14 and the largest it was at one point was 20. Okay. No, there's one other. Actually, there's one other guy I can think of who I've been in touch with recently who has maintained his sobriety. Since. So roughly two out of 14 Yeah. I do believe the statistic from the research I've done, I do believe the statistic is about one in 12. Mm -hmm. will maintain long-term recovery after being in treatment and I don't believe that's anything to do with the treatment itself I think you know because and this is what I've discovered through working there I mean I started off as a voluntary doing part-time voluntary work and then started working there full-time at the end of last year uh Uh, is that it's the support afterwards because you you watch people change it's such a rewarding job I I mean I absolutely loved it it is to watch people come in broken and I can really relate to that I was broken when I walked in I was the shell of a woman I was I, I didn't know who I was and you watch them sort of like allow the walls to come down allow the love in allow the healing to come in allow sort of themselves to be seen and you start to watch them evolve and sort of like I love that you know bloom it is they start to bloom and they start to love themselves accept themselves and they go out leaving a completely different person you know it's a 360 or 180 I don't know how but they're just they're so different to how and how they come in they've got love for themselves acceptance for themselves they've got courage they're glowing their eyes are sparkly again and it's what happens after that it's the support for me it's the support after treatment that is actually pivotal to the success long-term success in recovery and
0: what can we delve into that too (laughs) yeah what what have you found I guess in your own personal experience versus professional
1: experience mm-hmm. working at the center yeah. for support? For me, it was, it's community. It's, it's building a community around me but understand what I'm going through. Um, I found my place in 12-step, in the 12-step fellowship uh, in, for me specifically, NA, but I've tried many and actually it, it, it doesn't really matter which fellowship also is, being around people who understand how ridiculous my mind mind can be when left to its own devices, Um, the way my thinking can go off, uh, who understand that. Or I suppose it's that space where you can be real, you can be hurt, you can be sad, you can be angry, and there's no judgment. There's no advice. There's no judgment. It's, ju- it's a, a space to be human. Um, I'm finding my purpose because, as I said, I've always worked in the healing industry. Halfway through my treatment, it was, I le- it was like a light bulb went off. I suddenly realized that everything that I've studied, everything I've learned, everything I've experienced in my life and in my professional career have been to help people who have been in addiction who've experienced active addiction or in a place where their life just isn't working for themselves to make that to change that and I'd always you know I'd been coaching for a while but never really knew where I wanted to go and it was just instant I want to coach people in recovery so it was finding that purpose and that is that's that's a fire I think for humans, if we don't have a purpose and we don't have that fire in our belly driving us every day, then it can be very easy to just sort of like start to coast and eventually give up and allow the thinking to sort of like spiral out of control. Being human is difficult. It comes with no manual. Being a human and having a human mind, I think, is one of the most challenging, (laughs) challenging things there is on this planet. And we don't get taught how to do it as kids. And we don't get taught, you know, how to make most of it. We have to learn as we go.
0: I think, too, like, just like you said, being a human is hard. But I think also the part where, and this is kind of where I'm hoping the podcast kind of goes, but. There's just, I find at least still, it's 2023, but I still find that there's so much stigma and so much shame and guilt for struggling mentally. And then even more with addiction. Yeah, And I, I find there's just the, there's kind of a disconnect between everybody always says it's okay to not be okay. But then in reality, when somebody goes to talk about not being okay, or to ask for support or to... Mm-hmm. kind of dig deeper into those traumas then there's kind of there's that big disconnect
1: between those two i find hugely hugely oh I mean, you know it's it's a buzzword isn't it it's okay to not be okay but actually how many people will allow someone the space to not be okay how many people you it it, it changes it but i think it brings up our it it brings up a person's discomfort <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me it, it, to realize that someone's not okay we don't really we don't really know how to just sit with something, uh, very much, and especially now it's all about constantly moving, fixing, making it better. Doing this, actually, sometimes we just need to sit with it, allow people to feel it, um, very much so. And I see it, you know, I actually see things changing, uh, with my. Daughter, when I speak to my eldest daughter about things, how things work at school, and how they approach each, you know, how they approach each other, it, I actually get a sense that something has finally changed, because it is okay for people to be different. It's okay for people to be str- to, to struggle. There's no judgment against people who maybe struggle in maths or aren't as good at school as others. They've, there's much more acceptance.
0: And and is your daughter, daughters in Spain with you?
1: Yeah, they're both here with me. Um, My eldest is just coming up for 15 and my youngest is about to be 13. And listening to them, I've been very open with them from the point at which uh, I decided I needed help. I've been very open with them about my situation. And they knew I was in treatment. They knew why we would speak while I was there. And they've, when I've come home, you know, since coming home, I've been very open with them. They know I go to meetings. I've, in fact, been told on more than one occasion when I start to get a little bit tetchy that one of them says, Mum, I think you might need a meeting. I'm like, okay, right. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) So,
0: And how did they, I mean, they're quite young still, but how did they kind of respond or react to your openness and your honesty
1: and having a conversation about those hard topics mm, they were they were so loving they were so loving about it um their their response to me at the beginning was sort of like finally was sort of like at last you know we've we've kind of known you've got a problem we've known you're not happy for a long time um good i'm glad to hear you're going to get some help um i'm a i'm a single parent. I I've separated from their dad when my youngest was eighteen months, so it has just been me and them for a long time so it almost sounds like the the bond or the connection between
0: you and the girls got stronger, yeah the more honest the, you became
1: yeah, the more honest I've become, it's become stronger my, my the you know in my mind it's sort of like the more honest I can be, hopefully I can help them avoid the same pitfalls. I'm not naive enough to think they're not going to make any mistakes in my life. Of course they are, because that's that's what life's all about. We ha- we do make mistakes, but it's about knowing that we can pick ourselves up, how we pick ourselves up, that it's it's not a sign of weakness to make a mistake. It's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. Um, so hopefully I can I could show them through what I was doing that whatever happens, it's not the end of the world for them. And it's created... Um, because, of course, you know, in active addiction, we're constantly hiding. We think we're hiding it from the whole world, whether or not it's drinking or using or whatever it is. We think we're we're keeping it a secret. You know, no one really knows. No one knows exactly how we're feeling. No one knows to the extent of, you know, our consumption or our behaviors. Because it's also, it's not just substances. It's behaviors. So whether or not it's watching TV, the way we eat, um, you know, sex, gambling, shopping. There are so many different... Outlets for this avoidance of what's really going on inside us to come out, um, and that's what I wanted. You know, I just thought if if I can show them it's okay to be human, then I'm doing I'm doing my job as a mother, um, and it has brought us closer. We still have our issues. I mean, you can't live with two teenagers and not have issues at times. <laughs> so, but. There's a, a sense of honesty. I don't hide anything from them anymore. And it's allowed them to be more real and more honest with me about what's going on in their world. And do they,
0: obviously they kind of have the conversations with you, but do you mm-hmm. find that they have the conversations outside of the family, outside of the house, as to like being supportive of addiction and mental health or? Yeah. Yeah
1: yeah yeah they do but also what i've discovered from them is there's just so much more education i mean here in spain and and I, I can't talk about you know other education systems but from that first year in high school my they have been getting education and awareness on drugs on alcohol on mental health on bullying on social me even to the extent of you know social media and this is the other you know the other semi-okay uh addiction I think is kind of rife these days mm-hmm. uh, but there's so they're just there's so much more dialogue there's so much more open conversation in general for them um than there ever was for me
0: I I find it interesting that that's how Spain is operating, um, school curriculums because here in Canada and Mm -hmm. I've been out of the, I've been out of high school, secondary school for for 10 years now. (laughs) Um, which is crazy to say out loud, but even when I was in school starting in grade nine, just over 10 years ago, there was a health class that talked kind of about sex and pregnancy and, diseases and stuff, but it never went into it. I guess it was always only physical health. It was never mental health. It was never addiction. Mm -hmm. It was never coping mechanisms. It was nothing, nothing of that sort. And I have younger siblings right now that are in school and they've never mentioned that that's present in the curriculum. Oh, wow. Wow. To this day. So I feel like there's still, there's a disconnect between curriculums in different countries
1: yeah yeah I'd love to get this I mean one of the therapists that was uh was at the center of just I mean he left just as I went in as a client and one of the things he did was go into schools in the UK to talk about addiction and to talk about mental health Um, and because i think it's one of these things and this is where the stigma i think comes from if we're going to this is that it's kind of not talked about it's considered a from what, you know from what i get it's almost like a a dirty illness mm-hmm. and it's just it's so sad because it's it's an illness like anything else it's a, it's a, a mental health illness it's an inability to cope with the trauma it's an inability to cope with the pressure of life it's you know it's just it's not the inability it's just not having the tools knowing how to how to handle these things and this is where if we can start early if we can start teaching kids I mean I'm quite an advocate that the 12 steps in some way could be taught in schools because I think it gives everybody a it's not really just for people with addiction issues whether or not it's behavioral substance it's a way of living. It's, you know, understanding ourselves, uh, spending time looking at how we operate in the world, um, wondering whether or not, you know, we do we need to make a, an amends to someone, say sorry to someone. It, it's just general sort of like good living. Um, and it's oh where was going with it but this should be in schools kids don't need to know how to do maths they don't really need to know history anymore they don't need to yes. the life that, that they're moving into is and the world they're moving into is completely different mm-hmm. they need to know how to handle their mind they need to know how to not believe everything they read on social media or on google they need to you know it's it's just so different and um, i for the most part, I don't think the you know, education curriculums have caught up, but hopefully they're, you know, they will do, they're moving in the right direction. At least- I
0: I remember, it was either grade nine or grade 10, so it's still going back, you know, quite a few years, but I remember there was this big assembly, like all of the high school students met in the gym and there was this, I don't even know who it was anymore, but there was this presentation in the gym that talked about drinking and driving and just substance use and mm. that kind of thing but I almost feel like and maybe it was the the people that I grew up with or the people that were present but I almost feel like it was just taken kind of as a joke yeah instead of seriously because at that time going back almost 10 years ago I don't feel like there were yeah. the conversations that we're having today.
1: Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, we were just told not to do it. There was no sort of discussion. There was no, It's just sort of just say no to drugs. Just, you know, don't drink. It's that, bad for you.
0: Yeah, that was kind of the presentation that I remember having yeah. in school. But it also went into, maybe it was Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Um, <laughs> but there was, whoever yes. the instructor was of this program course thing they I remember very vividly seeing photos of the physical damage and the mental damage that like drinking and driving does on people but it yeah. doesn't like it doesn't go beyond like don't do it this could be you this could be your loved ones yeah. but it didn't it didn't talk about how to get support when you're already in that just don't Wait. do it yeah and it's just not like as easy it, right? as just don't do it don't no, touch it it's
1: not that easy <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy when you sort of it's the peer pressure and it's the experimentation and you know every kid most teenagers at some point you know it would, in the same way as they experiment swearing at their parents maybe they're going to experiment with having a drink um it's this it's also for me the idea that once you do do that you're bad you're <laughs> wrong And that's when it's sort of like, oh, well, my God, if that's the case, then I never speak of it to anybody, never admit that I've done that, never admit. Um, And that's when we start creating, you know, the deep down, the the issues deep down. And what keeps it going, what people, if people are too scared to say, actually, I've done that, Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't one of my finest moments. Um, and I'm going to learn from it and not do it again. It's like, oh, my God, I'm a bad person. At the moment we start feeling like a bad person, At the moment we start feeling, you know, any sort of negative self-talk, um, our self-esteem starts going, and therefore we, we're we not worth working for. I mm. don't know, slightly off topic there. but I, yeah. No,
0: I still think it's, <laughs> it's very true because it goes, it speaks to the whole conversation about, trauma, mental health, and addiction. Mm. I kind of want to take the conversation on a hard left
1: okay,
0: and kind of go back to, I don't know how you worded it, but you said that you don't like when people use the word clean yep. in terms of sobriety or recovery, because mm. it, it kind of implies that you're dirty or your illness is dirty or your struggle is dirty. Is there other, is there other words that you like to use and, and, I guess, other maybe stereotypes or other words that kind of
1: continue the stigma, in your opinion? I think the word, I'm still looking, and anyone who's listening who's got an idea of what could be used instead of clean, please, you know, let, let me know, because I'm still looking for an alternative to clean. I haven't found one yet. I keep, I've, you know, it's something that keeps coming up. I think the word, you know, the word addiction in itself is it has such a stigma around it um mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a substance or behavioral disorder the use disorder um kind of works for me anything that i so say i don't i'm i it's really interesting i struggle with the word when people call it an illness i understand that it is an illness and that there are a lot of people that helps um but for me it's it's more of a condition Uh, It's like diabetes, type 2 diabetes. You can actually have a huge amount of control over diabetes by watching your exercise and watching your eating. It doesn't need to be this label. You can have a a normal sort of, excuse the word, life. And it's the same with it's the the condition of addiction. And this was something a, a mentor of mine said. It's a living problem. It's not a drug or a drink problem. It's a living problem and that i really connected with me because that's what it is it's it's humans that are struggling with living and as a way of escaping that struggle of a way of feeling different they found a a mechanism to get out of their thinking through a behavior or a or a substance um Regard Coming back to the stigma, it's just this, it's bringing it back to, it happens to everyone, isn't it? Mm-hmm. it again, goes back to you think of addict and you think of people are struggling and it's instantly this sort of, oh, it, it, without wanting to kind of stigmatise uh, in my own mind, it's this sort of like person sitting on the street shooting up in an alleyway, um, mm-hmm. no teeth and all the rest of it. I've worked with people who are executives of multi-million dollar businesses i've worked with parents i've worked with you know young people who have struggled with their you know dealing with the trauma of their childhood it affects everybody it is not it it doesn't just you know whole. it's not just weak people it's not just men it's not just it it can hit anyone at any time so true so true I always, I always
0: like to ask those that are in recovery if there's, mm-hmm. and everybody is different, obviously, but if there's like words or statements or phrases that they find that are still commonly used today that just enhance the the stigma. For example, you saying clean, that is one that I hear quite often.
1: Yeah, clean is is okay. my biggest one is because it just to me, it indicates that when inactive addiction you're dirty. And that's it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, when you're inactive your addiction, you're hurting. You're lost. Um so I really I I want to eradicate that from the whole addiction conversation, this idea of clean. Sober is all right. Um and I say addict. I, I like to look at myself as I struggle, the other word I struggle with is actually calling myself an addict because, yes, I have addictive tendencies and I know if left unchecked, they can come out in all sorts of ways. I mean, I've watched them come out in the way I watch Netflix over the last year at times when I'm not keeping an eye (laughs) on myself. Uh, But it's I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery from life. Um, And I love the word recovery because it can apply to so many different things and it shows it. It shows such hope to yourself and to the world around you. Um, so if we, yeah, even if in like going back to, and I know not everybody is into twelve step meetings or, you know, into that, but it's sort of like I'm an addict or I'm an alcohol in recovery. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. The clean one is that my biggest, yeah, my biggest, my biggest sort of like beef is the word when people say so clean and I can understand why because you know I haven't I haven't drugged for a while or I haven't used for a while I haven't um but uh, yeah to, it just it's the other side of that isn't it it indicates that before they were dirty and I mm-hmm. think that's sad because it's that in itself leaves the still struggling addict out there feeling less than feeling it, not
0: worth it and it just adds even more to the shame and guilt they probably already feel in their exactly. struggle exactly so, exactly do you have any words of encouragement or words of wisdom or anything supportive <laughs> for um, anybody that was kind of in your shoes whether they are now or they're in recovery themselves
1: my only words of sort of encouragement would be you're not alone no matter how alone you may feel, you are not alone. You are not the only person to have those thoughts. Um, there are others around you, and there are others that are willing to love you until you're able to love yourself. Maybe if that's the issue, but there are others that are willing to even just listen and accept and uh, you while you process what's going on. Uh, and my, I suppose. Uh, a suggestion I find I struggle with the word advice because everybody is, you know, you have your own mind. A suggestion would be just to to give it a try, to give sharing what's going on in your head a try with someone else.
0: I love those. And I think they're I think they're beautifully said as words of encouragement and words of support because maybe somebody listening is in active addiction and they're not ready for quote unquote the advice so I I really enjoyed that you said those as kind of words of support and encouragement thank you is there for the listeners that want to keep up with you and your recovery journey is there a way that they can find you and locate you
1: yeah, so I'm quite open about my journey. Um, as you may have guessed, I'm not hiding it from anyone. Uh, the best place to kind of see where I'm at with my journey and what I'm going through, because I also share struggles that I come up against, is in, on Facebook. And it is, you know, it's facebook.com slash this is Elizabeth Walker. Uh, I also um on Instagram at uh, instagram.com slash the empowerment warrior all one word
0: oh i love um, that
1: yeah that's my that's my business name as well it is um and then uh theempowermentwarrior.com. you can find out more about what i offer mm-hmm. uh, and you know there's some you know on my story and uh, how maybe how i can accept you uh, accept you i can accept you i can accept you just as you are help you um and assist you on your journey, whether or not you're you know you consider yourself an addict or just someone who is wondering you know why they maybe turn to things as a way of escaping life I and I've spoken you know for me the 12 step has been really helpful I've also explored other ways and other sort of communities but I know that that isn't for everybody and that's a a, an area I hope to be able to to help people with is that to find their way into recovery their way into their recovery life that's right for them that's incredible
0: well Elizabeth I really want to thank you for a couple things I want to thank you first off for being a guest for connecting with me for sharing your story and you know your words of wisdom your reality your experience I know that somebody out there listening will align with everything that you've said. So I wanted to thank you first for guesting and sharing your story. And two, I wanted to thank you for being so open and honest, in public, recovering out loud. It's it's huge and it's very vulnerable and I'm sure it can be difficult at times, but I wanted to thank you for just continuing the conversation of recovery mental health and working through trauma and recovering through addiction. I know it's, it's not necessarily an easy conversation, especially when it's your own experiences. So I wanted to thank you for all of those.
1: Oh, thank you. No, you're most welcome. It is a real pleasure and an honor to be able to share my experience and hopefully let someone else know that they're not alone. And thank you very much, Jacqueline, for you know holding this space for doing this I know that it's a passion project for you and I just it it's so beautiful to connect with someone for me who is working to the same outcome
0: I I was actually you just took the words right out of my mouth (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to say that it's so refreshing and such a rewarding feeling to be able to connect with you and other like-minded I'm going to say friends yeah um, and guests that are kind of on the same mission as I am and although it is kind of a passion project or a fun project or a whatever I really hope that the podcast will eventually take off into something bigger I just don't know what that bigger is yet but in in all of these conversations and all of these guesting conversations it's it's achieving my goal of just raising awareness, of just talking about it, and of working towards breaking in the stigma. So, thank you for helping with all of those. You're welcome. <laughs> well done. Well done. And um,
1: yeah, I I I look forward to seeing where this where this goes, how this how this blooms, how how your podcast blooms. Because well, thank you. There's so much you bring so much to. To this area um and hope to others so yeah thank you
0: well thank you very much and i hope that we can stay in touch elizabeth i know sure of course i'd love to you've definitely kind of opened my eyes and i'm sure made others realize that you know it's addiction isn't just alcohol or it's not just kind of the harder drugs that people assume um and you mentioned several times that addiction can be sex or gambling or shopping or whatever fills the void, right? So I think that's yeah. also a really big a really big takeaway from your 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 episode, I guess you <laughs> shall <I> call it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank
0: you. And
1: Thanks,
0: I wanted to let you know, Elizabeth, and the listeners know that we're sending you lots of love and lots of light.
1: And to you. Right back at you.